0: Hi, Church Online. Thanks for joining us. A few weeks ago, my cousin sent me a podcast on spam. No, not the unsolicited and sketchy emails, but on the beloved or maybe not so beloved meat. You know, I love spam and my kids love spam, but I am fully aware that you might have a radically different opinion about this mysterious meat. And part of this podcast discussed why there is such a varied response to spam, especially across different cultures. For example, many Asians love spam. I am half Asian, and and I can attest to this. And the podcaster was of a Filipino descent, and and I'm also part Filipino. And, And so she wanted to research why spam or, or rather house-spam, became such a beloved part of her culture. And to save us some time, I'm going to jump straight into her conclusions. She found that at least for Pacific Islanders, like Filipinos or Hawaiians or Guamanians, this meat in a blue can was a sign of hope and freedom. During World War II, when the Japanese took over territories like the Philippines, things became really difficult for the native people, and there wasn't a lot to eat. But one day, tanks and soldiers wearing the red, white, and blue rolled through the streets, forcing out the Japanese and freeing the Filipinos. And these soldiers began distributing much-needed food, which included, as you guessed it, spam. And for many Pacific Islanders, spam was associated with peace. In a sense, as they caught these little blue cans that were being thrown from the tanks, with it came the thought, we are saved. And for a generation, there were memories of salvation tied to spam. Additionally, since it was cheap and it didn't need refrigeration, it also became a beloved staple in their meals for generations to come. At the same time, it produced an opposite reaction in the American soldiers. The same men distributing these cans of hope viewed the meat with despair. They hated it because they were forced to eat it as part of their meal rations. And when the soldiers returned home, they passed their anti-spam judgments to the next generation. And according to this podcast, your view on spam is likely influenced by the cultural generation before you, regardless of whether you have actually tried the mystery meat. And it's here we find a connection to our passage, today out of the book of Mark. In this section, Mark shares an important lesson that Jesus taught on discipleship, that our following of Jesus doesn't happen on our terms. It's defined by him. But our willingness to receive this new way of life is greatly influenced by the generations before us and the culture around us. Let's jump in and read it for ourselves. So starting Mark chapter 3, verse 7, it says, Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to a mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they may be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. Uh, that They were known as the son, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Sometimes it is helpful to study God's Word by looking at the broader Big picture concepts instead of breaking down the passage verse by verse. And I believe this is one of those times. Because when you look at this passage as a whole, you see one big lesson. Point number one for today is there are two types of people in this world there are disciples, and then there's the crowd. The best way to see this distinction. is to examine the words described in this passage regarding each group. If you read this passage again, you'll see that Mark describes the disciples with words like called and desired and appointed and named. I mean, to be named in this culture meant something. It gave power, it gave purpose. And then you see phrases like with and send and gave authority. Yet when Mark describes the crowds, he uses words like great but that's referring to a, a numerical largeness and then he says that the crowds were coming to Jesus because he was doing stuff for them. We also see that because of the crowd Jesus warned that there was a potential for him to be crushed. And in this passage Jesus gives the strict command to not make him known. While Jesus still engaged the crowd with grace and mercy, even doing miracles, the overall impression is a negative experience. On the other hand, the small group of disciples are described positively. This is affirmed even when we study the original language. For example, in verse 7, when Mark writes, Jesus withdrew with his disciples, this phrase is in what's known as the emphatic position. It means it's important. And then in verse 13, when he writes, and Jesus went up to the mountain and called the disciples to himself, the idea of a mountain brought significance to the story. Because in God's Word, the mountain was a place of divine revelation. Many times what happens on a mountain is important. And what this tells us is if the Greek language had things like exclamation points and highlights and bold lettering and underline, if those existed at that time and were used, Mark would have used those to emphasize the disciples. Why? Because in this passage, they are meant to be seen as important. But here's the point there is a difference between the followers of Jesus and the crowd or the people in general. And that difference needs to be noticeable. That's because the kingdom of God is different from this world. God does things differently. Or as the prophet Isaiah says, he says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours and my thoughts than your thoughts. And here's what's crucial to noticing this difference. Like, Like our current culture, the Jewish people loved the crowd. And if you're not careful, it's easy to be swept up into it because the crowd is exciting, the crowd is fun, the crowd is popular, the crowd offers visible validation. It makes decision making easy because obviously what's popular is what's best. And the Pharisees operated this way. They thought that whoever had the most, the, the, the great number, the numerically large amount of disciples, they were the best people. They were the best Pharisees. And we kind of get this because we still act this way, right? We value the crowd as king. I mean, I work with the youth in our church. And when I say youth, I mean sixth grade through twelfth grade. And, and, and I see this in them. Now, let me stop and say that I'm not picking on them as if they're the only generation with this problem because we too were, we too are, uh, we're influenced by the crowd just as much as they are. It just it looks a little bit different in our life than it looks in their life. But when when I invite a young person to an event, uh, I say, hey, are, are you coming to youth group? Uh, are you going to go bowling with all the youth? Uh, are you going to go to the youth retreat? What's the first question that they ask? They say, who's going? Which typically means if the crowd ain't going, I'm not either. And, and let me share this. This is a relatively new crowd influence trend. But on uh, Instagram, on, on social media, if you have more than one post, you're doing it wrong. All, all the young people, for some reason, have zero or one post. And when I've asked about this, the only explanation I've received is, well, that's, that's what everyone our age is doing. That's what the crowd is doing. That's what the culture, that's what our generation is doing. And this just tells us that the crowd is a powerful Influence. Now, just to be fair, I'm going to pick on some adults too. I'm going to pick on some Christian adults, supposedly wise ones. And so, right or wrong, there exists a principle in church planning, in the process of starting a new church, that's called critical mass. Basically, it means that if you don't have enough people to fill a room, it will seriously hurt your chances of people coming to your church. Why? Because people prefer crowds. Therefore, the correct way to start a new church is to begin with a core team of at least 50 people. And not just because uh, that many people will help fill up a room because, again, people like crowds, but also because that's the strategy that generations used before us. And so if you can't do that, the thought is you shouldn't start. Just in case you were wondering, the River Church started with seven adults and six children, which does not qualify as critical mass. And and yes, I had people tell me I should not start the church when I did. But in a way, it's very similar to people's view on spam. It's not about whether you're hungry or, or and, and need food. It's not even if the food is good for you. Uh, our perspective, whether we're we're in the youth or or whether we're in church or or, or we belong to any other type of group or generation or crowd, uh, it. All of us can be heavily influenced by culture and the generation around us. The crowd has power over us. And here's Mark's greater lesson for this first section. The kingdom of God isn't determined by the crowd, but by the Christ. Jesus is the one in charge. He determines what's best for the kingdom. And what did Christ do in our passage? He invested in the disciples. He didn't chase after the crowd. And he started with only 12, which even back then would have been viewed as a failure. And that brings us to point number two. But first, let me read more of our passage. So verse 20 goes on to say, Then he went home, and the crowd uh, gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came standing outside, and they said to him and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. And mother. Again, in this passage, we see things better when we don't get bogged down in the details. And by looking at this passage as a whole, we discover Mark is using a literary device known as the sandwich formula. In this passage, we see he starts with Jesus's family and he ends with Jesus's family, but sandwiched in between are the scribes, or, or we can say it this way, people who should have belonged to God's family. And together, they form a Jesus is crazy sandwich. Let me explain what I mean by this. Look at verses 21 and 22 together. Verse 21 says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And then verse 22 says, and when the scribes, again, this is supposed to be part of God's family, and when the scribes came down from Jerusalem, literally the city of God, mm-hmm. they said, he is possessed by the prince of demons. So what we see here is both the bread, his family, and the meat, the scribes, are saying the same thing. They are part of the same Jesus is crazy sandwich. And the implication is actually summarized well in John's gospel, where in John chapter 10, it says, many of them said, Jesus has a demon and he is insane. Why listen to him? They were saying, Jesus is crazy. Therefore, why should anybody listen to him? And and, and that's really the sense that we get here in the book of Mark. And when you bite into this sandwich that's something that's a principle that's a note that that's something you taste and it may as you taste it give you a greater appetite for the crowds because don't miss the crowds influence sprinkled over both the families and the scribe's perspective like msg the scribe's opinion was influenced by his lack of conformity to their common and popular practices of faith at the time. And then think about this. Included among Jesus' family, the, the ones who were calling Jesus crazy, was his mother. It was Mary. And at this point of the story, even this godly woman was influenced by the crowd of relatives around her the power of the crowd is significant and, and let me give you a couple reasons why it matters for us to be aware of this first i can confidently tell you that in this fallen world the crowd is often wrong especially when popular opinion is not rooted in the in the in god's absolute truth Therefore, being influenced by the crowd can have serious and even eternal consequences. I mean, look at the Jerusalem scribes who were influenced by their peers. They concluded that Jesus' miracles were sourced from the devil himself. And then what does Jesus tell them? Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I need to explain this a little bit. And so when the scribes said Jesus accomplished things by the devil's power, what they were actually saying, whether it was intentional or not, was that the Holy Spirit, who was the power behind what Jesus was doing, that the Holy Spirit was the same as Satan. And Jesus was like, if I could use our modern vernacular, he was like, bro, watch your mouth. Watch your mouth. Things all of a sudden got serious. It reminds me of when I'm joking around with my boys. And, and you know, I, I think I'm a fun dad. I'm I'm decently cool. I, I, got, I got nice shoes. And I play around with my sons until they cross the line of disrespect. They know that dad don't play around with that. They could be telling jokes and I could be laughing with them until they disrespect God, me, or Janelle. Then things get serious and I'm like, hey, boy, watch your mouth. And it's this kind of thought that I think is a good spot for me to finally share our second and final point for today. Point number two is watch how you talk about Jesus, because how you respond to Jesus matters. It reveals your heart. And here, the religious leaders revealed that their heart was hard towards Jesus, because that's really what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or this unforgivable sin, is about. It's about having a hard Heart And it describes a heart that is bent towards rejection and constantly moving in the direction of rebellion. And many times, the evidence of this kind of heart is disrespect towards Jesus. And we got to be careful about that. Now, many times people wonder if the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is is this actual sin that once committed can never be forgiven, and and I don't don't believe that is what Jesus is teaching here, nor do, do I believe that the entirety of Scripture teaches anything like that, but what's being discussed here is a warning. It's a warning that a hard heart only gets harder the more it resists the grace of God. And that if you die with that hard heart, if you die rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit, who is by grace trying to make you right with God, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. When you die rejecting His work, when you die unforgiven, And if that happens, there remains no hope for you. You will enter into eternity in an unforgiven state, and you will be judged and destined to spend the the rest of eternity eternally separated from God. And so if we can put the, the warning in simple terms here, it's don't let the crowd send you to hell. Watch how you talk about Jesus. But now, let me give some hope next to this warning. The hope is that even if that's your current perspective, even if that's how you could describe your heart today, it doesn't need to stay that way. Remember, Jesus's family is part of this same rebellious sandwich. They too believe that he's crazy, but Although they held that perspective at one time, they didn't finish that way. We know that his mother, Mary, and even his half brothers like James and Jude did not remain hard hearted towards Jesus. Mary, James, and Jude all became disciples of Jesus. They worshiped him as Lord and Savior. In fact, if you look in your Bible, James and Jude went on to write books of the Bible. And the hope for you is if you're alive, you haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You may have rejected Jesus all your life. You may have even called him crazy. But today, as the Holy Spirit is working on your heart, if you sense that something is different, if you sense his living water starting to soften the soil of your heart, you can respond today. You can come to Jesus. You can turn from your sin and put your faith in him. You can follow him. You can be different. You can become a disciple. Now, let me begin to finish up with another reason why this sandwich story matters. Because this sandwich isn't just a warning against the hard heart, but it's instructive on how to have the right heart. And we see this in the last part of the sandwich, the final piece of bread, the last verse in this passage where Jesus says, Mark 3, verse 35, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. People who truly follow Jesus are different. And what makes them different is they obey the will of God. They listen to what Jesus says regardless of what the crowd and the culture and the generations around them say. In the book of John, Jesus says, those who accept my commandments and obey them, they are the ones who love me. And so as we close, let me put all of this together. is that Jesus here in Mark chapter 3 is teaching us that following him is to obey him. And that's still an important lesson for us 2,000 years later because even today, the crowd is still responding to Christ incorrectly. And it's still trying to influence you to do the same. Even some within the church who are supposed to be part of God's family are responding correctly. Many in the church only want to follow Jesus for the miracles. Many only want him to fix their problems. They want Jesus as Savior, but not as Lord. And many would think that it's crazy to sacrificially obey Jesus. And many won't publicly follow him because it's not popular. But again, discipleship isn't determined by the crowd, but by the King. And if you carry the name of Jesus, if you call yourself a Christian, then your life should be defined by obedience to him. That's what it means to be a disciple. And so with that in mind, I want to suggest two uh, responses to end. Number one, check your heart. Second Corinthians says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Ask yourself, is your heart hard or soft in responding to Jesus? Second thing, ask yourself if you live like Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Do you obey him or do you obey the crowd? And that answer is going to reveal your heart. That being said, it is my faith-filled expectation that we are all together going to take steps towards Jesus today. I believe that you are hearing this sermon for a reason, that God's Spirit has orchestrated this moment and is calling out to you to take your place in his kingdom and to become part of his family. Let's pray. Father, we desire to be part of your family today. We desire uh, to be a different people, a special people, those who are known for following and obeying Jesus. God, we ask that you would forgive us for not living this way. Forgive us for the times where we've disrespected your name, especially when it was because we valued man's opinion over your truth. And by your Holy Spirit, please do a miracle in our hearts Cleanse us and fill us with your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks for joining us for Church Online. If this was your first time, fill out a Connect card. We would love to say hi to you and even send you a gift. Also, if you have any prayer requests, would like to know more about the River Church, or if you have decided to follow Jesus today, we want to hear from you, and there's an easy way to do that on our website, riverchurchct.com, or you can text the keyword TRC Connect. 94,000. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.